0: Going now. Yeah. All right, kia ora. hey, it's great to have you here, whether you're here live at Botany, uh, whether you are watching this in Hastings, kia ora to you guys, it's great to have you uh, with us. Um, is that weird, Harataki and Shona? Yes. Hey, so they're going to watch this in about two weeks, I think, so kia ora to you again, both times. And if you're watching or listening to this on the internet, it's great to have you with us uh, as well. We're in this series called uh, Transformed, which I should probably put up the slide for that to get us going. Um, in the second half of the Gospel of John, so John's one of the four biographies about Jesus in our New Testament. And we're in the second half of the, of the one that was written last by one of Jesus' closest followers, the Apostle John. And we started this last week and we're going to work our way through and we're going to see how Jesus' final words and final actions in the last 24 hours of his life and then his death and resurrection, how those things transform us. So last week we saw that we're transformed by the humility of Jesus as he washes our feet along with the disciples and invites us to do the same for one another. Today we're jumping into the second half of, uh, of John 13. So if you've got a Bible with you, if you've got a phone with an app on, if you've got an I, uh, iPad, whatever it is, I want you to come with me, if you would, to John chapter 13. Uh, as I said last week, it's really helpful if you have a Bible in front of you and you can actually look and, and follow these verses along as we jump into this story today. But the story today is, is about being transformed By love. And it's quite fitting that it's Mother's Day because the key idea that I want us to get, I want to give it to you right up front this morning, the key idea today is this, love at its best loves in our worst. Love at its best loves in our worst. And really, we have multiple examples on this board in front of me today of perhaps some of the greatest examples of that exact principle because this is mums, isn't it? I'd like to say it's also dad's, by the way. But since it's Mother's Day today, I wanna, this, this is mum's. In fact, no matter how old you are, I wonder if you were to scroll back through the movie reel of your life. For some of you, it's not particularly long yet, maybe just a few years, 13, 14 years. For some of you, it's slightly longer than that. But I imagine you can scroll through the movie reel of your life and you can think about the times where you were at your worst and your mum still consistently loved you. I think at the time when my older brother and I were left at home, I've shared this story before, and we broke uh, by kicking a ball around when we shouldn't have been this beautiful uh, vase uh, in our home. And, um, and, and so we decided between us that we'd be better just to put it back, put the piece in, pretend nothing had happened, and if mum asked us, we were just going to lie flat out and, um, and, and, and back each other to get through that episode and so the next morning, my parents asked me, hey, we've noticed this has fallen over, got a crack. Do you know what happened? No idea, I'm sorry, no clue at all. Lied through my teeth. They gave me multiple opportunities to uh, actually, are you sure there's nothing you want to tell us? Only to tell me at the end that my older brother had had a, a guilty conscience and had told them the previous night exactly what had happened. And so I'd sat there and looked at my mum, I think I was about 12 or 13 years old, looked my mum straight in the eye and lied through my teeth. I was at my worst. And my mum loved me. In love, she disciplined me, but she loved me through that episode. Think of the time when I was eight years old and um, they got the news from school uh, that that me and, and one of my mates had been shoplifting. And and so my parents, my dad was on the board of trustees at that point of our local primary school, had to come down and talk to the principal and find out that their son was a thief. Um, In fact, they only found out a couple of years ago that I'd actually been doing it for months, not just a couple of days like they thought. So she loved me when I was a shoplifter and she loved me when I was 40-something years old and she actually found out the rest of the story. (laughs) I think about the time when I got my driver's license. Uh, As a 15-year-old, you could get a full license in my day full licence at 15 years old, there's a youth group car rally that next week I take out my mum's Toyota Corolla with a a heap load of teenagers in the back and wipe out two tyres on the side. Love at its best, love's in our worst. And mums, thank you, because you are wonderful examples. And not every mum is in the world, sadly, but many are, and you are. Uh, and so I want to say thank you, because I think mums, mums, at, at your best, this is you. You love even when we're in our worst. The greatest example of that, though, beyond wonderful mums and awesome dads, the, the greatest example of that is, is Jesus. And in the story we're looking at, what we're coming face to face with is the love of Jesus, uh, because this is him. His love is epitomized and shown beautifully when his followers are at their worst. And so if you've got your Bible open, come with me to uh, to John chapter 13. And I want to jump into the middle of the episode that we're looking at today. John chapter 13, verse 31. It reads like this, when he was gone, which is Judas. We'll come back to him shortly. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I'll be with you only a little longer. You'll look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I am going. You cannot come. There's a whole lot of glorifieds in there, and it almost kind of gets too many. Your kind of mind gets overblown by what, what is Jesus talking about? What is he saying? He's telling his disciples that the time has come, for him to die, you remember, if you were here uh, last week as we started into this, this is how he begins uh, John writing this part of his gospel uh, with these words in, in chapter thirteen, verse one. It was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come. Now, earlier in John's gospel, um, the, the Jewish leaders and authorities were trying to seize Jesus, and John would write, but they couldn't seize him because his hour had not yet come. And they couldn't seize him because his hour had not yet come. Now we come to chapter 13, the second part of his gospel, and he says his hour has come. Because the shadow of the cross is happening when the 24 hours of Jesus saying these words, his body will be laid out cold on the slab of a grave. He will have died. He will have given his life for the sins of the world. So the cross, the shadow of the cross is overhanging Jesus as we saw last week as he washes his disciples' feet. And the shadow of the cross is here. That's what Jesus is saying. When he says in verse 31, the Son of Man is glorified and God the Father is glorified in the Son, he's talking about his death on the cross. The hour has come. But it's not an hour that we would look at and think is an hour of shame or an hour of agony or of an hour of hardship, because that's what it is. Jesus is going to go through tremendous pain and physical hardship during the lead-up and the crucifixion itself. Even worse, he's going to have all of the sins of the world poured onto his shoulders. The wrath of God is going to come on him for my sin and your sin. And yet Jesus here says, this is glory for me. Winston Churchill in the Second World War talked about this being their finest hour. Jesus is saying, this is my finest hour right now. I'm heading to the cross. Because this is love at its best. But he says it's not only his death, because verse 32, and if God the Father is glorified in me, the Son of Man, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. So he's also talking, I think, about the the death that's impending in the next few hours, but also his resurrection and then ascension and then exaltation. All of it is part of the hour that's now come. It's time. The the, the finest hour of Jesus is about to happen. And this this is love at its best. What John says at the very end of this opening sentence that doesn't just begin this chapter, but really introduces this whole second half uh, of, of his book. Having loved his own who were in the world, Jesus loved them to the very end. We saw last week that means both to the very end of his life in terms of time frame, but also to the full extent, the uttermost in terms of the quality of his love. And so that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about the cross. He's saying, guys, I'm about to go. This is is the end. This time we've got, this is the finish. I'm about to go, and I'm about to be glorified by giving my life for you. This is the greatest thing I can do for you in love. Paul will say in his letter to the Romans that while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. This is the best kind of love. This is the greatest love, love at its best loves in our worst. And then in light of that, Jesus then gives this command in verses 34 and 35. Have a look. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Three times now, he looks at these these guys and says, guys, I'm leaving So here's what I want you to do. You now need to love each other. As I've loved you, now you love each other. As you've experienced my love, now I want you to to, to take that love and pass it on to each other. Now, this was not necessarily a new command. As he commands them here to love each other in the same way that that he has loved them. This is not a new command. Back in the Old Testament, in fact, the heart of the law was, was this verse in Leviticus 19. Are that you're to love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. So it's not that this is a brand new command. That's not what Jesus is meaning. But he's saying, I'm building on what the Old Testament taught, and I am intensifying this command in some multiple ways. And this is a few of them. This is a new command in the sense that it has a new object, that we are to love one another. So under the Old Testament law, um, God's people just loved uh, each other, just ethnic, the nation of Israel, that was it. No one else got in to be part of that. They just loved their neighbor, just fellow Israelites. But Jesus has already said in John's Gospel that I have other sheep not of this fold. I'm going to throw open the doors of, of the church to every tribe and tongue and people and nation. I'm going to invite all nationalities, all ethnicities in together, and I want you to love each other across different boundaries, across different socioeconomic Uh, Levels across gender, uh, uh, across nation, across languages. I want you to love each other. And in fact, Jesus will also extend that beyond and say, I even want you to love your enemies so that they will come into this love. So it's a new uh, new command in terms of its object. It's a new command in terms of its reason. Under the Old Testament, they were to love their neighbor because uh, God said, I am Yahweh. In in other words, that's that's, that's my character. So it's the right thing to do. Jesus comes now and says, I want you to love because I've loved you. Just as I've loved you, now you love. So it's a whole new reason for loving one another. But also embedded in that, I think, is this whole idea of there's a new source for this love. I'm not asking you to find something in your own character, your own heart, um, to, to love others. I want you to take the love I pour into you and lavish on you. And out of that, I want you to love each other. And then he says at the end of this little section, this is to be the mark. This is how everyone will know your mind. The mark that we are followers of Jesus is not big churches or cool music or, or, or great preaching or a knowledge of Bibles. The way that people would, should know that we are followers of Jesus is because his amazing love is what people see in us as they watch us treat each other and reach out to even people that we don't like very much. And this then is the heart of what Jesus is saying here. The heart of this story is this command. I'm going to the cross. I'm about to display my love for you in an amazing way. I want you now to love each other the way I've loved you. That This becomes the heart and soul of John's theology. This really is the key message of his gospel and of his letters. So he'll write these words later on. We love because he first loved us. In fact, John says, whoever does not love their brother and sister who they've seen, how how do you say you love God who you haven't seen? He's given us this command, John says, anyone who loves God must love their brother and sister. That's, That's this new command that is given the night before Jesus will die with the shadow of the cross looming over it. Jesus just having said, I'm about to glorify myself by giving my life for you on the cross. This is the heart of my message. Love at its best, loves in our worst. Because here's the reality. They were not 12 amazing men lying around that day having a meal together. They were not top blokes. They were not the 12 best specimens of humanity that the world had ever seen and therefore were easy for Jesus to love. In fact, they were very ordinary. And in that moment, a couple of them at least were at their worst. And so what John beautifully does here, as he writes his story of Jesus, is he, he, he sets up this part of his story, and he, and he talks about the fact that Jesus is saying, in a few hours I'm going to die for you as an expression of my love, so I want you now to love each other. And he takes the heart of this idea that love at its best loves in our worst, and then he sandwiches it in the way he writes his gospel and he gives two exhibits explicitly of how Jesus' love is so remarkable. Exhibit A and exhibit B, and in the passage, they're either side of this. So we've, looked, we've jumped into the middle of the passage we're in, to the heart of it, which is Jesus loves us with the best possible love, so we should love each other. Now what he's going to do is he's going to sandwich that before and afterwards with two exhibits. Exhibit A In the verses previous verses eighteen to thirty, exhibit A is Judas, and we're going to see Jesus at his best, loving Judas at his worst. So again, if you've got this in front of you, have a look. Come back now to the beginning of this section, which begins actually in verse eighteen. We jumped into the middle. So John thirteen verse eighteen, Jesus says, "I'm not referring to all of you. I know those whom I've chosen." But this is to fulfill his pas- uh, this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. He's quoting King David, talking about him being betrayed. Jesus knows that one of the 12 closest followers sitting around that table this night at dinner, one of them is going to betray him. And Jesus says in verse 19, I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. In other words, he says, I don't want you to be surprised, guys, in a few hours... When one of you does the unthinkable, I don't want the rest of you to go, oh, no way. Why didn't Jesus know that? Jesus is saying, no, I want you to know. I've already known. In fact, I've known the whole time. John, earlier in his gospel, and back in chapter six, had said, Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray them. And Jesus said at that point, moment in the story, have I not chosen you, the 12, yet one of you is a devil. Now, when we read the gospels, All four gospel writers tell us right up front, Judas is going to betray him. He's going to stuff it up. Judas is going to let the the thing down. He's going to hand Jesus over. He's he's a crook. They want us to know at the beginning of the story as we read about Jesus that Judas is, is a villain. But the disciples don't know that. And so Jesus is telling them now this night because Judas is about to do the unthinkable and Jesus wants them to understand he knows. And he's chosen to love Judas anyway. Now I love the statement at the end of verse 19. Don't miss that. I want you to know so that when it does happen, he says, you will believe that I am who I am. That is a direct claim to be God. I am who I am is the basic meaning of God's name in the Old Testament, Yahweh. When God appears to Moses in the burning bush and calls him to go back to Egypt to set his people free, Moses says, who shall I tell Israel has sent me? And God says to him, I am Yahweh. I am who I am. But look at verse 19. Jesus says, I want you to know I already knew because I am who I am. I'm God. I knew that. But I love him anyway. Verse 20. Very truly, he says, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Implication, if you reject me, you're in big trouble. And after he said this, verse 21, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified. Very true, truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to betray me. Now at this moment, the disciples are shocked. Verse 23, his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. Uh, Matthew will tell us in his gospel, they were very sad and they began to say one after another, surely it's not me, God. They could not fathom that one of their inner circle would betray Jesus. So they look at each other aghast. They've got no idea which one it could be out of the 12 of them to the point where they're saying, oh, good night, it's not me, is it? They can't imagine that any of the other 11 would do this. So they suddenly start thinking, gee, it's not, not, I wouldn't do that, would I? they're totally surprised by this turn of events and what Jesus is saying. And so verse 23, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. And Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. So leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? So this is John who who wrote this, the youngest of the 12 who wrote this gospel. This is uh, who he's writing here. And he is reclining next to Jesus. Now, Unless you understand how this last Supper is actually working, it's a little harder to understand what's going on here, but luckily, um, while the 13 were in the room, Jesus and his 12 apostles, there was a 14th person in the room. And he drew a picture of what it looked like. His name was Leonardo da Vinci. And uh, luckily, he was actually there. And so he, if my remote will actually work, he, he, that, that's, there he goes. So it's almost, it's almost as good as a photo. Da Vinci was just sitting in the corner while it all was happening, and he just quickly painted the scene for us. Um, In fact, if you're familiar with the painting of The Last Supper that Leonardo da Vinci did, uh, this is actually, um, the painting is set in the exact moment here in the story. Jesus has just announced that one of you is going to betray me. But it didn't look like that at all. So it didn't look like da Vinci, and even worse, it didn't look like what Dan Brown came up with, what that might mean either, by the way. Um, This one is much closer to what it would have looked like. So this was not a high table that da Vinci painted. It's a very low table, low to the ground. And they were sitting pretty much on the floor. They would have either been reclining on couches, or if there weren't couches in that particular home, they would have been reclining basically on mats on the floor with pillows. And they would have been leaning into towards the table on their left elbow. So they would have been lying like this so that their right hand was free to lean onto the table and take some food or, or to pick up a cup and have a drink of wine, and their feet would have been going out. So it was almost like spokes around the table, like spokes of a wheel. And so if you're leaning like this, it means that one, the next person, the next guy, because it was all men, of course, at the Last Supper, so the next guy's here lying this way, and the next guy is behind you here. So John is lying, reclining on the right-hand side of Jesus. And so John, when Peter motions him, which means Peter literally nodded at him, so Peter was somewhere else around the table, Peter's like, that's what literally it means. And so John just leans back right against Jesus and very quietly says, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answers him then in verse 26. It's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it into the dish. And then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. This is a, a moment in the Passover meal where they bring out almost a chutney-type uh, dish called choroset And they take the unleavened bread that they're eating, and, and what would happen is the host of the meal, as they celebrate Passover, would dip the first piece of bread into the choroset and would give it to the guest of honor at the table. And most probably because Jesus gives it directly to Judas, that means Judas, if John's here and Jesus is here, Judas is here. When you're, reclining, when you're seated at a banquet, the, place, the highest place of honor would be on the right, which is why Jesus is often signified as now being seated at the right hand of God. But if you're reclining at a banquet, the place of honor, highest place was left where that the host where the host could lean back onto the honored guest so what we're reading here is that Judas is in the place of honor at the table and Judas is given the first morsel of codasit as the guest of honor at the table and Jesus knows exactly what he's going to do see this is love at its best Jesus is not surprised Jesus already knows that 30 pieces of silver are clunking together in Judas's purse. Jesus knows that Judas is already looking for a way to slip out from the meal to go grab the chief priests and their soldiers. He already knows what the whole plan is. But he's already taken off his robes and washed Judas's feet. And now he's seated him at the place of highest honour at the Last Supper. And he has given him the morsel to signify that he is the most honored among the 12 who had been arguing, remember, for months, who was the greatest? Jesus has just answered their question. Judas is. He's the one I want to honor. And yet Judas is the one who is going to betray him. Verse 27 then. As soon as Judas took the bread... Satan entered into him. The ultimate moment of demon possession. Not just any demon. Satan entered into and empowered Judas from that moment forward. So Judas said to him, what what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had a charge of the money, some thought he was telling to buy something for the festival or give something to the poor, and as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. One commentator, Grant Osborne, writes these words, each act of Jesus' compassion towards Judas, like the washing of his feet, and now the morsel passed to him, simply hardened Judas' heart, and now he's possessed by Satan, totally consumed by evil. This, though, is love at its best. And I don't want you to miss two incredibly important things about the love of Jesus for Judas. First of all is all of these acts that Jesus has done towards Judas, knowing full well what Judas is going to do. He is doing his very best to reach out to the heart of Judas, even in the last moment in an attempt to win Judas's soul back. And so he's knelt and he has washed his feet He has seated him at the most honoured place. He's given him the morsel as his his most honoured guest. All trying to reach out to Judas to exhibit his love for him. This is love at its best. This is the love of Jesus. And as Osborne says, Judas turns away. But I want you to notice something else. Not only did the disciples have no clue when Jesus predicts his betrayal, who could it be? They had no sense that it was Judas. And even as Judas leaves, there's no hint. Jesus didn't announce, it's the one I'm going to give the morsel to. He said that quietly to John. No one else heard that. So the disciples, get this. The disciples have watched Jesus live with them and interact with them for three years. Never has it felt like Jesus treated Judas any different. Never has it felt that, that Jesus held Judas out, you know, at arm's length. Never did it feel like Judas treated, was treated any differently than any of the other 11. That's not how we operate. When we have someone in our team at work who we feel like is trying to stab us in the back, we treat them differently to the rest of the team. When we're in a bunch of friends at high school and we're all hanging out, but there's one guy or girl that's just got it in for you and they make sarcastic comments and you find out they're gossiping behind your back, you just treat them differently, don't you? If someone's hurting you, you can't help but respond back, even if you want to love them, even if you want to care for them as a follower of Jesus. It is so difficult to love someone in spite of how they treat you And Jesus has known since the beginning, since before he called this man to follow him as one of his apostles, Jesus knew he would betray him. And for three years, Jesus loved him as completely as he loved the other 11 so that it was an utter shock to every apostle in the room that it ended up being Judas. That is a love that I have no clue how to give. That is a lifestyle that I struggle to emulate. But that's the love, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're now commanded to give. See, that's love at its best. A love that reaches out to Judas. Exhibit A of love at its best is the way Jesus loves Judas. Exhibit B is much quicker, by the way, but Exhibit B is Peter. Because you come to the other end of the story, the final four verses, final three verses, sorry, verse 36. Simon Peter asked Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Because that's what he'd said in those verses in the middle there. Jesus replied, Where I'm going, you can't follow now, Peter, but, but you'll follow later. And Peter said, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay my life down for you. Isn't he cool? I love Peter. And Jesus says, No. Will you really lay down your life for me, Peter? No, very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you're going to disown me three times. I've normally, in the past, I've thought that as Jesus announces to Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me. I've always thought it was a, a challenge that Jesus was giving, almost a, come on, Peter, you can do better than that. I actually think this is one of the most loving statements that Jesus makes to Peter. He's wanting Peter to know beforehand, Peter, I already know how horribly you're going to fail. You are going to do one of the most spectacular face plants in the history of the world. And I know that. And I've washed your feet anyway. And I've taught you these truths in this moment anyway. In fact, he will say to Peter in Luke's version of this, You say, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you like wheat, but Simon, I have prayed for you, that your faith will not fail, and even though it will fail, when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. There's powerful words of life in the way that Jesus reaches out to Peter. Love at its best. Love's in our worst. There's these two powerful exhibits that sandwich this core idea in the middle of this section. Jesus loves you and I. To the point he will go to the cross for us. Even though we never deserved it. Even though we fail. Even though we face plant, just like Peter. Even though there are times we've denied him. Even though there have been moments at work that we were talking about in our small group this last week, when there's an opportunity to speak up and say, I was at church on the weekend, and all of us have failed to grab those moments, haven't we? Because we're afraid. We're Peter's. We're Judas's. We're loved. We're loved even in our worst. And Jesus says, I want you to comprehend my love for you. And then I want you to take that love and pass that on to others. Exhibit A of that love is Judas. And exhibit B is Peter. But there's one final exhibit. Skimmed past them, but I want to come back. His name is John. He's the author of the story. If you've got it open. Look back at verses 22 and 23. His disciples were staring at one another, at a loss to know who it was. And one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. You notice how John described himself: the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is the first time John refers to himself in his own gospel. He'll talk about himself a few other times going forward from this point. Every time, he doesn't use his own name. It's like John's turned up at a party somewhere, and they've handed out the name badges, and instead of writing, hello, my name is John, he's written, hello. Oh, hasn't used the cool font I came up with. Anyway, he says, hello, my name is the disciple whom Jesus loved. And and we read that and think, geez, that's a little bit arrogant, isn't it? But I don't think this is a a claim of arrogance at all. I think this, this is a statement of astonishment. This is John going, you know what? This love that Jesus exhibited for Judas and this love that Jesus exhibited for Peter, this is the love that he exhibited to me too. And I never deserved it either. Remember when we talked about being servants, it was James and his brother John who were the ones who came to Jesus with their mum and said, hey, could we have the best seats in the kingdom? It was James and John again in another gospel who, when one town told Jesus to get lost, they're the ones who want to bring down thunder and fire and destroy everyone. There have been moments in John's pilgrimage where he's been a complete idiot. But he's felt the same extravagant love. And so as he writes his story and he places himself in When it's appropriate, he says, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. Exhibit C. One more undeserving follower who Jesus loved anyway. This is the verse we just read earlier. Read that first line again quietly. We love, he first loved us. We will never live out this new commandment to love each other until we realize just how much he loves us. We are Judas, and we are Peter, and we are John. We don't deserve this love. We don't live up to this love. We wander away. We get apathetic. We fail to seize opportunities. We leave his word on a shelf for months at a time. We grow hot and we grow cold. We're inconsistent. We deny Him. We're honestly poor excuses for disciples. But He loves us. He loves us because it's His love at its best. As we come to the story today, I want you to hear the two. Four things that John wants us to understand. The first one is that we're allowed to wear his name badge. If you're a follower of Jesus today, you are the disciple that Jesus loves. If you have committed your life to him, you are the son or daughter that he loves. If you deny him tomorrow, you are loved. You drastically sin today, you are loved. You fail to obey his commands this week, you are loved. If you are lukewarm right now in your walk with him, you are loved. Because his love doesn't depend on your performance or your ability or your consistency. Because it's grace. It depends on his character because he is the one who loves when we're at our worst. Some of you need to hear today you are loved. Some of you would never dare to put that label on your chest. And I want to invite you to do exactly that. Some of you don't know Jesus personally. You might be here or you might be listening or watching this and you're here checking things out. You're wondering what this is about. This is about a God who loves you so much he became one of us to die for our sins and rise again. And he offers you not only life forever, but this loving relationship that will never end. And right now, in this moment, in the quietness of your heart, you can simply bow before and acknowledge that you're sinful and don't deserve it, but you want to embrace His love. Well. And that is equally true if you've wandered away 14 years or less or more. That is equally true if this last week hasn't been a particularly crash week. The first thing John wants us to understand is that if you're a follower of his, you are loved. And then the second thing is that you are now meant to love like him. But you will never put this second label on your shirt until you've got this first label on your shirt. And you will only live out this second label in your life when you have embraced and are living out this first label on your life. So my invitation to you today, and I was going to use labels, but then I knew you'd take it off before you even got home. (laughs) And I don't want you to take them off. So I want you to tattoo these labels on your soul. I am the disciple that Jesus loves. Therefore, I will be the disciple that now loves like Jesus. The band is going to come back up. And they're going to lead us in a couple of songs that I love. They're songs of confession. They are songs that, that take these truths and say, This, this is me. I'm claiming this. And so I want to invite you as we finish the service this morning with these next two songs, I want to invite you to make this a confession and a prayer. I want to invite you as you sing these songs along with our team to allow the words of this song to emblazon these two truths on your soul. I am the disciple that Jesus loves. And I am the disciple who will now love like Jesus.